beginning at verse 1. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we come this morning to worship you and to to hear about the birth of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Christ. We ask for open hearts to receive your word, prepared hearts to receive it, that it may bear much fruit in our lives, that we, we may respond with glory and praise and adoration to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. The familiar scene of children gathered at the base of the Christmas tree, tearing into Christmas presents while mom and dad look on, will play out in many families throughout America tomorrow morning. All the preparation that went into selecting the gifts and wrapping them up neatly and beautifully is done for the joy of seeing someone unwrap them on Christmas Day. Luke does that here for us in this text this morning. What was carefully wrapped up in the Scriptures, he unwraps to show us the birth of Christ, leading us to a response of joyful adoration. So in wrapping this gift of Jesus' birth, we will look first at how in God's providence he orchestrated everything so that the timing was perfect. Then we'll see at the same time that, um, that his birth was paradoxically very humble, but also filled with glory. And finally, hearing this good news should provoke 
the same response it did on that day. Glory and praise to God. So let's look first at his providential birth. Luke himself is a historian. He sets out to give an orderly account of the events surrounding Jesus. He tells this in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to a man named Theophilus. He wants to write an ordered account. And, that, and therefore, he strings together the narrative, beginning with the birth of Jesus and leading, of course, to his death and resurrection. And he sprinkles in historical references to establish not only chronology and to situate the, that account in a particular time in history. This is when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome and when Quirinius was the governor. This is a, a datable time that we can reflect back on. And although Joseph, who seems to have been much older than Mary, had settled in Nazareth, his ancestral homeland was, of course, Bethlehem because he is of the lineage of David. And so for the purpose of counting or, or a census, which is obviously for tax purposes, all of the families need to return to their ancestral lands and be registered. Providentially, Mary happens to be pregnant at the very time when this registration takes place. And so Joseph travels back to Bethlehem at precisely the time when Mary is due to give birth. And the two names of these Roman governors situate this event within a definite time in history. Have you ever stopped to just think about all that needed to take place for just this one event to happen? Caesar Augustus is often hailed to be the founder of the Roman Empire. He is her first emperor, and he had wrested control of the empire from three other contenders, one of them which was Mark Antony, uh, known for his love affair with Cleopatra. And he uh, had largely accomplished what his great maternal uncle, Julius Caesar, had begun. He was named Augustus, or the August One, by the Senate. His name was Gaius Octavius, and he did what had not been done before. He united the Roman Empire and uh, brought in what is called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which would last for the next 200 years. And had Caesar Augustus not accomplished what he did when he did, then probably he would have never registered the entire empire for them to gather in their homelands to be numbered. And uh, you could imagine that Mary would have had Jesus in Nazareth. But at that specific time, Caesar calls for a registration and he can do that because he has a united empire to rule over. Jesus came at the perfect time. And that's one of the reasons why we celebrate his birth on December 25th. We don't know exactly when Jesus was actually born. One commentator states, quote, In the post-New Testament times, Mithraism, originally from Persia, amalgamated with the Roman worship of Sol Invectus, the unconquerable son, 
and a festival to Seoul was celebrated every December 25th. Christians took advantage of this day off to protest against Mithraism by worshiping the birth of Jesus instead. And after the Roman Empire became officially Christian in the 4th century, this date was then turned into a legal holiday we know today as Christmas. But the interesting thing about the 25th or around this time in December is that it's the shortest day of the year. It has the most darkness. It's the bleakest point in winter, right? And that is the moment when Jesus arrives on the scene in the bleak darkness uh, before the dawn. Coming as it does um, as the very shortest day of the year. All of history, of course, before the birth of Jesus, was building towards that very moment when from the fall God promised a deliverer from the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Every event of importance, along with all of the mundane, coincide together to reach the moment when Christ, the Son of God, would be born of the virgin in the little town outside Jerusalem called Bethlehem. We mark our time. It begins at that moment. Not that there was no opposition up until that point. There, there very much was. If you were to glance at the names in Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3, you would see how many times that there World powers, the nations, had tried to snuff out not just the Jews, uh, but uh, the promised line of the Messiah. But here he is, in God's good providence, at the perfect time in history. Here he is, he's born of Mary in Bethlehem. But that providential birth was also paradoxically both humble and glorious. And let's first consider his humble birth. As far as births in the first century, it's doubtful that Jesus' birth was as rudimentary as it's sometimes made to be. Births in the first century were just challenging, right? They didn't have the the kinds of uh, technology and things that we do. Infant mortality was very high, and it wasn't as if they were, um, you know, had a birthing wing at their local hospital. Uh, Most of the children were born, of course, in their homes, Um, And this is no different for Jesus. Although it does say in uh, there in verse 7, it's it's largely thought to be the guest room in some family member's house. And probably there was no room in that guest room, and so they were in a place that adjoined the house where the animals would be kept at night. But uh, um, uh, maybe something like a cave uh, that was very near to the house, or at least connected to the house. Uh, the lo- but, so the question that we're asking is, uh, how was Jesus' birth humble? Uh, to us, of course, it seems if you're born in a cave and, a, and you're laid in a manger, it must be humble. But there's much more on, uh, uh, than what appears on the surface. The larger catechism question 47 asks, how did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? 
And its response is, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, and that being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. The Son of God, creator of the world, and its rightful ruler, who was with the Father and the Spirit, the transcendent Lord over all, set aside His glory and came to earth to dwell with man as a man. He came not to inhabit just any world, but this fallen world with its attendant curse of death and suffering. Jesus, of course, the the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had existed from all of eternity. But He had never felt the suffering of a body that hungers, that grows tired, that is sinned against. It's hard for us to even imagine this, that God, the Son, cried out for His mother Mary, for her to comfort Him with the warmth of her body, seeing to his bodily needs and feeding him from her own breasts. How staggering that the infinite God who cannot be contained became finite. The transcendent became imminent. The glorious one became the humble one. The self-sufficient became dependent. God became man. Much more could be said for his emptying of himself to take on flesh and to dwell among us without mentioning the manger and no room for Him in the end. These only add to the picture that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to stoop to the lowest of lows to save His people from sin. And it seems from the creation account that Adam was made as a fully developed man, not an infant. And you can imagine God doing this also with His Son. Why a little baby? Why in humble Bethlehem? Why was his birth greeted by shepherds and not kings? In order for God to save man from sin, it would not do for him to make a whole new creation. But the one who would save this creation must come from within it. He must be one of us, yet greater than us. Athanasius, the early church father in his work called On the Incarnation, said this, quote, While it was impossible for the Word, that is the, the Word, the, the second person of the Trinity, to suffer death being immortal and Son of the Father, to this end He takes to Himself a body capable of death, that by partaking of the Word who is above all, might be worthy to die in the stead of all, and might, because of the word which was to come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible, and that thenceforth corruption might be stayed from all by the grace of the resurrection. You see, unless the word took on flesh, he could never die to atone for sin. As Gregory of Nazianzus famously said, Whatever is not assumed cannot be healed. If Jesus does not take on a body like men, then He cannot heal us who have bodies 
from sin. So Christ assumed a body like a man so that he could suffer and die for man. As Paul said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Further, what is more fitting for great David's greater son to be born in Bethlehem and received by shepherds? And we need not think that these shepherds are the worst of Israel, thieves or vagabonds. David was a shepherd, and God himself is a, is a shepherd of his people, the the people of Israel. Being born in this humble condition and greeted by the shepherds instead of kings was fitting for the king that Jesus would be. Repeatedly, Jesus will resist being put upon by those who have their own designs for his Messiahship. He will be a dying and a rising king that no one in the world would or could have expected. So his humble birth matches his humble rule. Now we may like baby Jesus in a manger on the front of Hallmark card, but the truth is we are not very willing to empty and humble ourselves. Humility is one of those virtues everyone wants to be known for, but no one wants to actually be. Consider that the Son of God became a little child, and calls us as, dis- as disciples to emulate him, saying, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is it about children that Jesus is calling us to be like? And how does that relate to humility? It's certainly not the innocence of children Ch- Jesus calls us to emulate. Anyone who has raised a two-year-old knows that they're not innocent. They're born in sin, just as we all are. It's their absolute trust and dependence on another that Jesus is calling us to. We are born utterly incapable of caring for ourselves. If the breast was not put in our mouths, we would not eat. We are born unable even to hold our own heads up. We must be swaddled and fed and changed and cared for by our mothers. But as we grow, we become increasingly independent, sometimes fiercely so. And it is this latter attitude that will destroy faith. Only those who recognize their inability and lack will cling to Christ as children depending on Him alone for salvation. Humility is not grasping after our rights, but marshalling our gifts, influence, and resources in the service of others. You could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Christ became a baby and humbled himself even lower to the point of death, and he calls us to do the same. Having the mind of Christ means considering others more highly than ourselves. How much of the world's conflicts would disappear if people lived this way? How much of the church's conflicts would remain if we only followed the example of Christ? As humble as the birth of Christ was, it was also mingled with great glory. We find this juxtaposition whenever we look at at Christ. 
He is a lion, but he's also a lamb. He is God and man. He's a suffering servant, but he's also the exalted Lord. And it's hard for us to comprehend how he can be both. But he is, and we must confess it and hold them always together. Christ is both deeply humble and highly exalted. And it wasn't the shepherds who discovered Jesus. They were told about Jesus. He was announced by the angel of the Lord. Presumably, it's the same angel Gabriel who announced the impending birth to Mary herself in Luke 126. And now he appears to make known this good news to the shepherds just outside of Bethlehem. And in contrast, there is an inscription of Caesar Augustus. It's really an altar. And it says on that inscription, the birthday of the God, in reference to Caesar, has marked the beginning of the good news for the world. Caesar Augustus was the first one to institute imperial worship, the burning of a pinch of incense for Caesar. He was seen as a god, the first man of Rome. Imperator is what he was called. And this inscription announces the gospel of his birth. The heavenly host of angels announced the same thing. Fear not, they tell the shepherds, for behold, I bring you good news. The gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The gospel these angels announce is the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord or Christ and the Lord. Being the good readers of Scripture that we are, our minds should be drawn to Psalm 110. There the psalmist says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ means anointed. And that draws to our mind the images of prophet, priest, but especially king. And King David in particular. And the Lord, being the name the Jews used to speak of Yahweh out of reverence for the holiness of His name. Instead of pronouncing Yahweh, they called Him Adonai, Lord. The little baby Jesus born in Bethlehem is Christ the Lord, God incarnate. That hymn that we sung earlier, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, the second stanza says, Christ By highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh, clothed in the garb of men, God came. The great anointed son of David and son of God. Luke is here making a subtle comparison with his mention of Augustus. The good news proclaimed by Rome's first man was the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. 
But the good news that Jesus will bring is much more expansive. It will be the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. When the host of angels join in the chorus of praise to God, they hint that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, will bring peace to the world. It was quite a feat that Octavian Gaius Caesar Augustus brought peace to Rome. But it did not mean an absence of war. Rome still waged expansive wars against other nations, pressing out in all directions. The peace that Caesar Augustus brought was peace from internal turmoil of civil wars and coups and sedition. Think of Brutus and his assassination of Caesar. He united Rome under a common law. But that did not mean that all men from then on lived in peace. There was still plenty of fighting and strife. Some of the worst peace would not be the absence of hostility against our fellow men, but against God. But God being who He is, holy and just, we of course lack the resources in ourselves to bring about peace with God. There was nothing we could offer Him that would assuage His anger and wrath against us and make Him our friend. Because God was true to His character, He could not just wipe away our sin by fiat. He could not just say, like an indulgent father, Oh, you meant well. His holiness and His justice must be upheld. But that didn't mean that God did not have a plan to overcome that enmity and to bring us at last to peace. And this plan was unfolded throughout history and was hinted at over and over again. It began when God entered into a covenant with His people, promising them blessing and calling them to walk before Him in holiness. He gave them a sacrificial system which pointed forward to the day When a Savior would come and deliver His people from sin and death and bring them peace. And that peace consists of being reconciled to God so that He is no longer your enemy but calls you His friend. The birth of Christ made this peace possible. His death and His resurrection and of course His ascension secured it offering it to us now and in through His Spirit and bringing it to its fullness when He comes again. So there is an already but not yet aspect to the peace of Christ. First and foremost, the peace of Christ means that we have peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace enables us to call on God as our Father, Abba, Father. It results in that inner peace since the heart that is set on sin is at enmity with God. As Paul again says in Romans 8, 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That does not mean that we will not have conflict or suffering. That kind of peace must wait until Christ returns and brings it to completion. Only then will the ravages of sin be reversed and the original goodness of God's creation will reach its intended goal in the new heavens and the new earth. 
But it is that inner peace that Christ gives which will sustain us in the midst of our suffering. As Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What could be more glorious than peace, overcoming enmity? So although the birth of Jesus was humble, as he emptied himself as the Son of God and became a man, he was heralded by a host of angels glorifying God for all that his birth would mean for the world that was to come. As glorious as the most august Caesar may have been, he paled when compared with the Savior who was born, Christ the Lord, who would free us from sin's dominion and bring us peace. The Pax Christi would not last a mere 200 years, but would stretch on for all of eternity. The good news of the gospel demands a response. There can be no ambivalence to the angel's message of hope. Either it is true and Jesus must be worshipped as Christ and Lord, or it is not, in which case we may do well to formulate our own myths to get through the holidays. May I suggest Santa Claus? So these shepherds do what most would do. They go and they investigate. They go and they find out. They want to see with their eyes the sign that the angel had given to them. And they didn't take their time either, but they made haste to go and to see the things the Lord has made known to them. That is the attitude of faith-seeking understanding. Faith need not have a complete grasp of all the facts before it compels us to go and discover more. Maybe you have come this morning because mom wanted you to. That's okay, so long as you don't leave it there. You are now in the place of these shepherds, so come and find out more. But imagine on the flip side, imagine being the shepherds that night, seeing the angels and hearing the gospel, and then not responding the way that they did. Imagine you, you tried to explain away the angels and the virgin birth, or, or you discounted that God would even think of coming to earth as a baby. Imagine how... It, Absurd it would be to reject all that and remain behind with your sheep. What would you miss out on? You would miss out on seeing Christ. But more importantly, you would miss the peace of Christ. Those who do not come and accept that Jesus, born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary, is both Christ and Lord, are still in their sins and therefore still enemies of God. Rejecting the good news of the gospel preached today amounts to the same thing. Mom may have compelled you to come, but mom can't give you the peace that passes all understanding. Only Christ can do that. So come and find out more about this Jesus born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Make 2024, the year that you not only trust in Him as your Savior, but give your life to Him as Lord. But notice there are two other responses to this event that Luke draws our attention to. Mary's response and the continued response of the shepherds. 
when the shepherds come and they find the scene just as the angels had told them, it confirms and strengthens their faith. It has the same effect on Mary. I mean, just put yourself in her shoes. Imagine an angel comes to you and tells you that you will conceive a child that will be the Christ, the Son of God. This is somebody that your culture has been preparing for for thousands of years. Imagine he comes and says, you're the one. You have been chosen to bear the Son of God, the Christ who will save His people from their sin. Imagine the suffering that she endured after that fact. Would you believe somebody if they come, if they came and they weren't married, but they were betrothed and they said, I'm pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be God's Son. No, probably not. You would distance yourself from her. And it was only because Joseph had been told in a dream by the same angel that it was true that he stayed with her. Bearing all that shame himself. Because now it looked like they both were engaged in sexual immorality. All the pain and suffering just of pregnancy, but then also being ostracized by your whole community. I think that we have often done a disservice to Mary in the Protestant church. Sometimes we have overreacted to the Mary worship of Rome. But she really was an amazing girl. She is the God-bearer, the Theotokos. And although she's not a co-redemptrix, she certainly played as an important part in God's great plan of redemption. And even as she steps out in faith to receive the child, God gives her confirmation of His promise throughout. In the conception and birth of John the Baptist, her cousin Elizabeth's child, and now in the testimony of these shepherds of the, the angel's gospel announcement, and they come and they find it exactly as the angels had told them. And it says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Treasuring means to guard and protect something that's precious. Pondering means to ruminate, to wrestle with them for greater understanding. Mary is one of the few adults in this scene who will emerge later in the Gospel of Luke. And already at this early juncture, she's an ideal model of faith. Now, on hearing the good news of great joy, you have the same choice as Mary. You can take these precious promises of the birth of Christ and treasure and ponder them so that you may have a greater understanding of them. The result, of course, is a deeper faith. And I would suggest that this looks very much like what Mary has already done in the singing of her song, the Magnificat, in in Luke 1. That is her reflection on God's promises and how they are beginning to be fulfilled in her and how she sees them unfold. And at each turn, it strengthens her faith as she sees that God is not only a trustworthy God whose word is sure and His promises will never fail. Our faith grows when we rehearsing the promises of God, we see them come to pass. When, for instance, you pray and God answers your prayers, what does that do for your faith? 
you trust him more. And then you bring more things to him. You realize this is a God who hears my prayer. And he responds. Why would I not bring him even more? Why would I not bring all of my burdens to him? And that deepens your faith that God is trustworthy. And you'll be even more inclined when you come to suffering and hardship to believe that God will be there with you. That God will see you through the difficult times. When you're attuned to His Word and you're attentive to His promises and you're praying His Word back to them, then you'll be aware of the many ways that God's at work in your life. But if... And God is at work in your life in many ways that you do not even notice. Why do you not notice them? Probably because you're not praying for those things. Or you have not read them in His Word. That doesn't mean that God's not at work in your life. But when you are attuned to those things, when you're praying for them, and then you see them take place, it results in praise and glory and adoration of the God who is at work to save you. We have, uh, this goes also for families too. We have prayed earnestly as a family for things over the years. And our children have watched and seen how the Lord has acted and answered our prayers. We prayed for this congregation for years and years. We prayed that God would prepare you for us and us for you. And our children saw God act and responded, respond to our prayer. You need to be praying specific prayers as a family. So that your children can see God's providence work in your own lives. So that they could be treasuring up and pondering the things that God does just as Mary does in her life. Treasuring and, and pondering the promises of God, rehearsing them in prayer, and looking for their fulfillment in your life of faith are the proper responses to the good news of the gospel. When we see the gospel bearing fruit in our life, it always leads to doxology. That is the giving God praise and glory. And although uh, their testimony did not count in the court of law, these shepherds are the very first witnesses to the birth of Christ. And it is the weak and debased things that will shame the strong and the proud as it will be throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. Even His resurrection is first witnessed by women, whose testimony was also not permitted in court. The effect is to show that the world's distinctions do not hold in the new economy of Christ and His kingdom. So the continued response of these shepherds is to return to their work, glorifying and praising God. Worship is always the most fitting response to the good news of the gospel. And I just want to suggest three very tangible ways that you could respond this Christmas to the good news of the gospel. The first is, prioritize Lord's Day worship. Prioritize it as individuals and as families. Do not neglect the Lord's Day worship. And it's worship where the saints are called by God to gather together and to worship Him. Two, gather your family to worship together each day. Also, don't neglect the gathering of your families. 
every day belongs to the Lord, not just Sunday. And we should be beginning or at least ending our days with worship together, gathering as families, opening up His Word, praying together, pouring out your burdens as families so that your children hear your hearts and your concerns so they learn to pray as they hear you pray. And three, set aside time for private worship. And I would say especially you heads of households. If you're not feeding yourself and being transformed personally through your own worship of God, how will you have anything to feed your families? Each of these settings should provide ample opportunity for you to treasure and ponder the Word of God and respond to Him in prayer, giving glory to God in the highest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a remarkable birth Your Son's birth was. How providential, how humble, and yet glorious. And our only fitting response is to worship You. And so this morning as we've come to worship You, transform our hearts to be more like Christ. To treasure and ponder Your promises, knowing that His birth has brought us peace. That we are no longer Your enemies, but You have reconciled us. We are uh, at peace with You. And we give You thanks. And we worship and praise You for the for the great birth of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.